Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerzday, March 4th, 2024. On the show today, news, including a big hint about the next version of Genie Plus, surveys that indicate whether Jollywood Nights is coming back, and the listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim continues the story of how Tomorrowland got added to Disneyland's opening day lineup about this time back in 1955. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says the only time he feels down is when he's holding a goose. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well, Leonard. Have I ever told you about the time that Nancy and I drove down to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware? Uh, They had a Disney store outlet down there that Nancy wanted to check out. So came down through Jersey, yeah, road trip, drove through Delaware. But the thing is that as you're making your way to Rehoboth Beach through Delaware, you are on the flight path for the canadian snow goose are you really oh my god oh god it was surreal we drove by miles and miles of these harvested cornfields that were filled with hundreds of thousands of snow geese i eventually couldn't help myself len i pulled over jumped out of the car and ran out into one of the snow you 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 tried to catch a goose didn't you well, I wanted, I wanted to see, I wanted to see a thousand you know, plus snow geese taste to the air. You, you, okay, and, so you, you wanted to see a thousand geese take off, but step two in your master plan is now you've got a thousand airborne irritated geese. Well, I, yeah, there was that. Maybe haven't thought this whole thing through. Maybe. Well, actually, I really hadn't thought this thing through because I, as I was running, my pants fell down. And so, you know, it's one of these things where I'm trying to figure out are the goose taking off in terror because I'm running at them or, the, you know, it's like, oh, God, that guy's pants are down. Get, you know, get, 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 fly, fly, man, fly. Do you, you know, know so, that the older uh, geese were thinking to themselves, this is the most effective scarecrow I have ever seen <laughs> in my entire life? Like, they've really upped their game here. <laughs> That, this is true. This is true. But seriously, if you can ever get down to Rehoboth Beach, uh, you know, when this is going on, it is just, you know, words cannot describe what this looks like. It's, it's a, you know, it looks like a snow covered field, except the snow is moving. You know, it's that many. Geese. You know so. that the new town motto for Rehoboth Beach is keep your pants on, mm. Buster. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know, but but now we know the origin of that. For the love of God, keep your pants on. Welcome to Robert. Get a belt, Mister. Okay, exactly. All right, all right, Jim. Let's do a quick shout out to everyone who subscribes to the show over at Patreon.com/slash Jim Hill Media, including Nicholas Clark, Joe TV, Seth Johnson, Andrew Wartenen, Eric Viorito, and Robert Ford. Jim, these are the brand new cast members at Fantasyland's Barnstormer attraction now responsible for renewing Goofy's health, life, and airplane insurance policies. They say they spent most of this week saying things like, that is an actual crashed plane at the front of the attraction, and can we maybe throw a tarp over the billboard of Goofy inside a lit cannon just until we get coverage? True story. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Again, you only get this sort of stuff on Disney. You just got to keep your eyes open, man, when you walk around the park. All right. On to the news, which is sponsored by touringplans.com. Touring plans can help you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right, Jim, a bunch of Disney news this week uh, and then some universal news that we'll get to next week. But the, uh, the big Disney news was that they released their 2025 hotel rates for Walt Disney World last week. And it's significant because the release date, this release date, 
is more than three months earlier than normal. So next year's hotel rates have never been released in, at least in the last five years, have never been released before May 31st and typically more like mid-June. So Jim, is this uh, Disney trying to get ahead of Universal's opening of Epic Universe by saying, if you book now, we'll guarantee you these rates. For me, the one-two punch, and I'm assuming we're going to talk about this as part of the show as well, is you announce these rates and then there was the perk that was announced that if you're you know, going to stay on property, uh, you, know, you can get into one of Disney's water parks on your day of arrival. There was a, uh, a math sub-question about that, and I'm saving the math for later, kind of get let everyone's brains warm up to us talking on the show. We'll okay. do the math in a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it's got to be that right. I mean, Disney's got to look at this and say, you know, if people book now for 2025, we're going to at least get the first bite of their vacation dollars versus getting the last bite, you know, whatever's left. I mean, you know, at least if they're on property, when they get in their rental car and head over to Epic, you know, they they will get their breakfast, they will get their dinner, they'll get their merch sale. So Disney also announced a ticket price increase for 2025, and uh, cost for the least expensive tickets rose between 9 and 11%, depending on the park. So Animal Kingdom off-peak uh, went up $10 from 109 to 119 not including tax. Uh, Magic Kingdom off-peak went up $15 from 129 to 144 And Jim, the significant thing about the Magic Kingdom price increases is that a peak day Magic Kingdom ticket has broken the $200 barrier for the first time with tax. Oh, it's interesting. You know, we talk about this first two things at the front of the show. And and now this, that that's something people are going to carry home. And talk about... We could start seeing some sticker shock there just from the stuff that you have to pay for before you get here, right? So we've always talked about things like food being one of those components of a vacation budget that, you know, you might might have a line item in your budget for it, but not very many people actually take the time to research how much food costs at Walt Disney World. And they're kind of surprised when they get here and it kind of blows their budget, so... Um, yeah, that, that, that part is interesting. Anyway, the other interesting thing about the hotel rates announcement was, you know, hey, we're dropping hotel rates for 2025. So, you know, you get started on your planning. The last line, the very last line in its own paragraph of this announcement was, by the way, we've changed the hotel cancellation deadline from five days out to eight days out. And as soon as I saw that, Jim, I was like, well, that means that Genie Plus is definitely changing. Because everything that we've heard, and we've talked about this on the show before, is that the next version of Genie Plus will allow on-site guests to book Genie Plus reservations seven days in advance, and off-site guests will get three days in advance. And this policy change prevents people with Disney hotel reservations from booking all their Genie Plus reservations at the seven-day mark, then canceling those hotel reservations at the six-day mark, but keep the Genie reservations and then go stay somewhere cheaper, right? And I was, I was talking to somebody in Disney IT about this, and I'm like, this has to be cheaper than Disney paying developers to ensure that the hotel reservation system and the Genie Plus reservation system stay in sync, right? Changing the cancellation policy was vastly cheaper and easier than that. Like, Walt himself could, be, could come back from this cryogenic state and say, no, Len, you got it wrong. Here's why. And I don't know that I would believe Walt himself on this one. Like I just, <laughs> too much experience with uh, with how Disney IT works to uh, to think about any, anything else. God, it's like every time you turn around, they're putting down a new bear trap. I mean, the whole notion of, oh, did I say the cancellation, hotel cancellation, you can do it in eight days? Now it's five. I don't think Vegas makes crap tables that are this aggressive. <laughs> 
Imagine the craps table having like a uh, uh, a digital sign where the odds change dynamically depending on what you're betting. Yeah, yeah that's, I that's mean, this. It does mean, though, that we'll probably hear about uh, what I'm calling Genie 2 Electric Boogaloo, the next version of Genie Plus, Mm -hmm. uh, sometime this year. I I think now it's also tied up within the rumored changes to the DAS system that we hear. So I don't think it's going to be like in the next week, but before the end of the year. By the way, if they do, in fact, call it that Genie 2 Electric Boogaloo, that would take a lot of the sting out. You know, I I would feel somewhat better about it. Exactly. Yeah. And plus, think of the soundtrack and the clothes. I mean, my God. There we go. The merch just sells itself. Disney also announced this week that uh, guests with a Disney Resort stay in 2025 will get free water park admission on their check-in day. Yeah. I'm sitting here patiently waiting for for you to lay down the math about it. Because again, I I don't think this stands the sniff test for a lot of reasons. But first, let's let's talk the math. I was really skeptical about this too. But uh, but the math does math, as the kids say. And I got to give credit to Disney's industrial engineering team because they almost certainly had a hand in making sure these numbers work for the new benefit. So so good job on, on them. Good job, folks. All right. So uh, for this, I actually did some research. The uh, If you guys are interested in following along, the, the very latest Reedy Creek Improvement District Comprehensive Plan has some really interesting numbers in it. So for example, the Comprehensive Plan says that Typhoon Lagoon averaged 6,159 guests per day in 2019, and Blizzard Beach averaged 5,433. Overnight resort guests in the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which included Disney Springs, averaged 97,107 in 2019. So the first two numbers came from AECOM. So uh, Reedy Creek says these are AECOM numbers, right, for water park attendance. But if you think about it, Jim, because Disney controlled Reedy Creek in 2019, I'm assuming that for liability reasons, Disney did not have data that contradicted those numbers in a material way. Right. That means those numbers have to be true because if Disney knew they weren't true and then, they, you know, that would be that would be a problem. All right. So let's assume that those ninety seven thousand one hundred and seven guests are on four night stays, which is the, the sort of the, the median uh, number of nights for a typical stay. So twenty five percent of them on their check in days at any given time. So around twenty four thousand two hundred and seventy five guests. So on, on social media, our friend Ghost Host looked at Orlando flight traffic for one day last week and said, Around 300 flights arrive before noon in Orlando, and 775 flights arrive afternoon. Okay, so granted, we don't know how many people drive, and that's probably more than the people who fly. And we don't know the ratio of flights to cars or arrival times for anything like that. But fewer than half the passengers on flight to Orlando are going to arrive before noon. And, quote, afternoon could be anything from 12.01 to p.m. to just before midnight, which is a pretty big range. All right, so we, gotta, we have to factor this in somehow. Likewise, our friend BioReconstruct said that we have to factor in afternoon thunderstorms, which would likely prevent some people from going and chase other people from the park. So valid, we got to include all of that. And then also, Disney's been keeping one water park open until 8 p.m. during summer months. So if you can get to the park by 4 or 5 even, that still might be an attractive thing to do, right? All right, so keeping those three things in mind, going back to our 24,275 guests, let's kind of err on the side of caution and say that just under half of them will arrive on flights that land early enough for at least a couple of hours in a water park. So let's say 12,000 guests. The next question is, is what is each park's water capacity or each water park's capacity? For Typhoon Lagoon, it's around 7,200. For Blizzard Beach, it's around 7,000. And here's where, it's all, here's where it all comes together. So there are around 12,000 resort guests per day that could use the benefit. And both parks combined have capacity on average for an additional 2,700 guests. 
So let's call it 3,000 just to make the math super easy. So as long as less than one in four guests take advantage of this offer, the numbers work out for Disney. And that seems like an acceptable risk. I mean, like that's, I would bet that, right? I would, I, would, I would take the under on one in four, right? My question is now, past couple of years, we've, we've lived in a world where Typhoon Lagoon is open, but Blizzard Beach is closed for a lengthy rehab, and then Blizzard Beach is open. Yeah, so I think the, I think the implication here is that, uh, especially during peak seasons and warmer months, both water parks are going to be open. I'm concerned... You know, from a staffing point of view, from a maintenance point of view, is that still something Disney can do? And more to the point, you pointed out the whole, you know, only one park is staying open till late. The other one is shutting down, you know, four or five. And Well, they've been, only been running one park most days, um, one park. And so they, but that, in that case, like if the uh, park capacity is 7,000 and you're already at 6,000 and change, then the math doesn't math, right? Then that's not that's not good. So I, I think this implies that we'll see, again, during peak periods in, in summer, I think we're going to see both parks open. If it doesn't, then I'm going to be super interested in where, uh, where the math is headed on that one. My only concern right now is the added pressure this puts in uh, to the folks who are in the hotel lobbies who are physically, I mean, there are still people who don't do the advanced check-in right. and oh, you, yeah, know, yeah. You, know, you know that sort of thing. And the added pressure of people huffing and puffing in the, li- the lobby because it's like, why is this line moving so slow? You're cutting into my Blizzard Beach time. And it's like... Well, it would, so it would drive people to use um, uh, online check-in because then it, it's... It would. The, it the would. interesting thing is I was talking to somebody in uh, Magic Kingdom uh, guest relations yesterday about this. And they said that as soon as they heard the announcement they started drawing up a list of questions that they were going to need to have like a, you know, frequently asked questions list. So when a guest comes in and says, well, we didn't get in yesterday until midnight or our flight was delayed or whatever. Can we use our check-in benefit that we were supposed to get yesterday tomorrow? Right. Or, you know, why not? Or I didn't use it. Can I get a refund or, you know, things like that. And then there are questions like, do I need a magic band? Do I need to bring my cell phone? Like how was the actual admission process going to work? Is there going to be a separate line? Are you going to get on My Disney Experience a water park ticket with $0 value just for that one day? Like, how is it all going to work? Anyway, we'll we'll see. But there's a lot of uh, interesting ops things that still need to be ironed out here. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. Think about it. We also live in a post-Disney Express world. And when you think about you get off the plane, you have to go collect your bag. You then have to somehow get to the resort. You then, if you haven't done advanced check-in, you have to go in the lobby. You have to schlep your bags to the room. And it just, it seems like on paper, this is a perk, but in fact, our, our, our buddy Bio Reconstruct and I were going back and forth with this, and it just, it seems like it's yet another way a, a Disney vacation gets, you know, ad, added stress. And, and now the notion of I must move quicker to take advantage of this perk, and it's just sort of like, you know, I, I, that doesn't sound like the start of a very restful vacation to me, I guess is what I'm saying. The other thing that I, so. that I, I found was interesting was... You know, yeah, we're, we're doing all of this math and it's based on the behavior of people before this offer comes out. But what if you start taking the offer into account when you plan your transportation times? Like I know that, you know, 300 flights arrive before noon and 700 flights arrive, you know, afternoon. But what if everyone takes the 300 flights in the morning just to go to Disney? 
Right. Then, then the math doesn't work out. I know touring plants will keep be keeping an eye on this, and I can't wait to hear the reports a couple of months in about how this is working and how Disney tweaks Super it. Super so. All right. The other thing was uh, that I did this week in the parks uh, yesterday. So we're recording this on Thursday. Yesterday, Wednesday was the start of Flower and Garden. We're going to have Christina on next week to uh, to talk about everything that she cool, learned at cool. Flower and Garden. Cool, cool. And then, uh, Jim, you and I were talking before the show. The, uh, the main thing I took out of Flower and Garden is how few people were actually using sunscreen yesterday. Because it was the first like really warm day, <laughs> yeah. you know, early spring or whatever. And, you know, by the time I left Epcot around, you know, six o'clock or seven o'clock, the number of people who were lobster red in the park was noticeable. Like, I, I hope all of them have a better day today than they did yesterday. Anyway, one of the things I did uh, yesterday before the uh, opening of Flower and Garden Festival, um, I went uh, to the La Cava experience at La Cava del Tequila in the Mexico Pavilion. So I got invited there. They, uh, they want to promote their uh, their updated tequila experience. It's $180, uh, including tax and gratuity. I did not get a bill at the end of that. So I spread $180 in gratuities around the Mexico Pavilion service teams. And it all works out. Anyway, the thing I was mostly interested in is this. You know, I've done the the tequila tastings at La Cava before, you know, generally before the pandemic. So I was interested to see how it's been updated in the last couple of years. And it really has changed and, and significantly for the better. You walk into La Hacienda, everyone has their own uh, seat. And in front of you are um, a bunch of beverages and then a bunch of accoutrements, right? So uh, things to go with it. So in front of us, there was a plate of fragrant foods to help with tasting notes. So we had things like coffee beans, a baked cracker, some dark chocolate, lemon and orange peels, and then an orange slice. Also crickets, which come in later. But the interesting thing was was this. So one of the things that um, they started off with, and, and Umberto did the uh, tequila tasting here, and Umberto's done a, a million of them. He's he's from the town of Tequila in Jalisco, Mexico, so he knows what he's doing, right? So uh, this is interesting. He um, he poured some um, some blanco or silver tequila in a perfume atomizer, and then he had us hold out our hands, and he sprayed some of the Blanco tequila into the atomizer. And then he said, okay, you know, first thing is, is just smell the, 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 the tequila in your hands. And it's obviously the overwhelming uh, smell there is, is alcohol. Right. But then he said, okay, just take your hands, rub them together for a few seconds and then smell again. And then the smell wasn't alcohol because the alcohol had burned off by then. It was mostly sugar was what I got. And he's like, okay, now rub your hands together for five seconds. And then if you rub them together again, those volatile compounds um, evaporated, and then you're left with a different sense. And in this case, it was like lime and lemon. And I was like, I would have never thought to do that, but that's a great way to just start the experience, right? Well, no, I mean, to, to break down the component parts like that, that's interesting. So it's it's 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, we're there with a bunch of people, um, and we start with a vodka palate cleanser. And I'm like, well, that's how I start every morning, but you know... <laughs> This yeah. is no. Thank okay. you for keeping me in my in my morning routine. Um, but then the the other interesting thing that he did was you know how uh, tequila is made from blue agave, right? Basically, a large pineapple ish thing. He's like, does anyone know what raw agave tastes like before it's going through the distillation process? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, the the cup in the middle of your um, of your table is raw agave syrup that hasn't been processed. It's essentially we we took the agave, we crushed it. And this is what came out. And it tasted like a simple syrup. Like really all it tasted of was sugar. And but like a really, a really nice sugar, like not a super, super sweet sugar, like a really well-balanced sugar. And I've never had that before. I mean, I've had agave syrup, but not raw agave. And so that was that was really 
really interesting. So right off the top, two things that I'd never experienced before that sort of help you understand the process of tequila making. I thought it was great. Then we went through a, a Blanco, you know, the silver, a Reposado, which is aged up to a year, Añejo, which is up to three years, Extra Añejo over than that, and then uh, Hoven, which is a mixture of Blanco and some other other Añejo or Extra Añejo, just make it sort of like a middle ground. Um, and all of those were delightful. The interesting thing here is some of those shots that you get are more than $50 if you walk over to La Cava. So consider that you get five of those plus more, the $180 price tag kind of makes sense pretty quickly. We also ended up with a mezcal and a margarita, but the, um, the, the big thing was Umberto going through the tasting technique that he's developed over the years. Um, so like a bunch of different ways to smell than taste. Uh, the alcohol, again, taking into account that the alcohol is going to burn off and all the other volatile oils are going to burn off and then you're left with the scent. So really an excellent experience. I think it works really well with Epcot's sort of two missions of education and culture, right? So really, really, um, really, really good stuff. I totally enjoyed. Um, you can actually book this online uh, at, and I, I included the link in the show notes. So uh, I would definitely recommend it. Just tell them I sent you. All right. Next week, we'll have Chrissy on to talk about the start of Flower and Garden. And next week, we can also talk about the new details that Universal just released about the Shrek and Trolls land. Uh, in terms of surveys, we got a, a survey this week, and it was the survey that Disney's doing, and it's an in-depth, in-person, online interviews with guests who attended Jollywood Nights at Hollywood Studios last year. And so, Jim, I'm, I'm assuming this is clearly part of some sort of planning process oh yeah we shared the story about you know <laughs> i still love the story of of you visiting the park for jollywood nights with chrissy and chrissy continually saying that, that wasn't, wasn't here, here <laughs> for the first night i mean yeah. they put a lot of time and a lot of effort into turning jollywood nights around uh and i i in fact I, i'll be intrigued as as part of this in-depth interview to the effect of who did they contact? Because people who went the first night would have had a very different experience. I'm sure. And, uh, and I think as we go through these questions, you'll see that some of them are clearly designed to address concerns that people who went that first night had. All right. So, uh, so I'm not going to explain how we got these questions. I will say that the survey requires a non-disclosure agreement, and that agreement was not broken. We got these questions fair and square. All right. So uh, first question was, uh, who did you go with? Uh, how often do you go to Disney? Do you have an annual pass? Those sort of usual things. Um, why did you go? Uh, did you also attend Very Merry? Right? And then uh, there's, uh, as a refresher, um, the survey shows you a set of pictures of things that were at the party and asks you questions like, did you like this? Did you try it? Did you dislike it? You know, if so, why? And so basically, it's a, it's a refresher. Like, remember, we did this, we did this, we did this, this was offered and so on. So uh, the first couple of questions, would longer hours make the event more appealing? So for example, starting at 5.30 for a total of seven hours, which is kind of closer to the uh, length of time you get for Very Merry, right? Questions around how were the expected wait times at the rides versus like a regular day? Um, the, how did you like the special theming? Did you like the mascot Ollie? And would you like more of them, right? Here's the, uh, do you want more meet and greets? Here's the one thing I like. Should we decorate Batu to bring Christmas into that area? Uh, did you make it to the Tip Top Club, which was uh, like far out? Would, it, would moving it out closer to like Rock and Roller Coaster help? Did you experience the Latin Fiesta, which was over by Sci-Fi uh, Dining, which I loved? Um, and was that a good location for it? 
Did you experience the DJ in the main courtyard? Was that the appropriate location for it, right? Did the live events, the live entertainment live up to expectations? And then the next question, how important is it anyway to have live entertainment all the time during the party? And I think that's interesting because you can have constant live entertainment or you can do a couple of very high profile things as long as you ensure everyone gets a chance to experience them, right? So there's two different approaches there. Like, you know, do you want a lot of uh, entertainment, you know, some of which you will absolutely find entertaining, or do you want a couple of super high profile events that everyone can experience and that's it? Some other meta questions. Do you expect Jollywood Nights to be like Very Merry? And then should we even keep Jollywoods going forward? Did you enjoy the characters? How is the special food and beverages? And then here's an interesting thing. Which of the five, on a scale of one to five, how would you rate these food options? Number one is keep everything the way it was, no free items. Number two, a buy three, get one free, small plates offer. Third option was keep everything it is and you get one free item. Fourth option, keep everything else as it is, but you get a drink, a snack, and a small plate. Basically your own Jollywood Nights dining plan. And then number five is unlimited snacks and hot drinks included. Then the last one was, and this was a question that they said was going to be sent to Imagineering. And the question was, for Walt Disney World Imagineers, other than merchandise and the time spent in line, what would the Imagineers need to do to bring you back to Jollywood Nights? Yeah. Wow. Good question. Because that's not a, that's not a park ops question, right? So the, the interesting thing about that last question was, if we can fix all the park ops stuff, right? Let's assume that we get through that or we think we've got through it, right? We think we have a handle on it, right? That's the relatively straightforward stuff that Florida can control on its own, right? Whoever's running Disney's Hollywood Studios can control a lot of that on their own. But when it comes time to building things or inventing things that are going to bring people to the park, that's where Imagineering has to step in. And that's what this question is for. One thing worth noting here, and this dates all the way back to when Toy Story Midway Mania was first announced for California Adventure. And uh, I remember talking with the Imagineers there about, okay, so the next Toy Story movie uh, at, at that point, which was Toy Story 3, supposed to come out in a year or so, and it's like, you know, you can bring in characters from that. And the, the, the Imagineer in charge of the project volunteered, well, you know, we can go further than that. We can do seasonal variations of Toy Story, Midway Mania. We could do a Halloween-themed version. We could do a Christmas-themed. So just re reminding folks of, of what I was actually told by the people who did these things, that, you know, if the Imagineers are looking for something, now, mind you, I don't know how the day guests would deal with the notion of, oh, yeah, the Toy Story Midway Mania. Yeah, that's only for Jollywood Nights, you know, the Christmas version. You, you get the standard during the day. We get overlays, you know, for um, for holidays all the time. I, but I think I, I love that for a number of reasons. Um, one is this. Uh, Toy Story Mini is a very reliable ride when it comes to breakdowns. It's one of the most reliable rides in Walt Disney World, and that makes it one of the most reliable rides in Hollywood Studios. If you changed, if you updated Toy Story Mania, it would take some pressure off of Slinky Dog Dash, which is less reliable. Um, and that's, you know, the, the balancing guests out over the park, especially in the first hour the park is open, 
is super important. So that would address that. That's not a bad idea. And and remember, you know, this is, you know, the the, the Florida version of Midway Mania we're talking about with not two tracks but, but three. three. Yeah, and that third track added a ton of reliability to the to the ride. I mean, it's not just a capacity thing. Yeah. All right, so we'll see what happens there. But if uh, if anyone else gets a gets an opportunity to uh, try this survey out, uh, let us know how it goes. All right, Jim, time for two quick listener questions. Our old pal, Jason Schultz. Hey! Yeah, who's building a uh, digital Disneyland archive over at parkendium.com, wrote in after last week's episode about the Autopia to point out an August 1956 Disneyland photo over at the Gorillas Don't Blog blog showing seatbelts in the Autopia cars from 1956. So, Jim, I put the, uh, the photo in the show notes below. But a couple of things here, right? All right. So Jason's right. There were definitely seatbelts in 1956. Jim, take a look at the uh, the photo there. Notice the length of fabric shown in that photo is long enough that I don't think it actually belted anything because in the photo, the cast member is outside the car and is able to stretch that belt at least a foot above and beyond the outside edge of the car. And he's not even holding the belt at its end. Look where his hand is on the belt. The uh, the other thing to note, though, is you were, uh, you were right that uh, the photo shows that there were no bumpers on these original Autopia cars. And as I was looking at this, like, you know, trying to suss out the details, I said, how much smaller are these Autopia cars than like an original MG Midget? Because the MG Midget, you remember that car from the 60s or 70s? It had a wheelbase of under seven feet. So I, 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 I was you know, corresponding with Jason, and it turns out the, uh, the Autopia cars are only a, uh, about a foot smaller than an MG Midget. <laughs> Dear Lord. I mean, I, I got to see one of these up close at the Walt Disney Hometown Museum in Marceline. Oh, Marceline, yeah, because they have the original. Yeah, they tried to they tried to rebuild the Utopia and, uh, and yeah, didn't get very far. And, and yeah. that thing is small. You know, I, I, again, you know, I think I could get into one, but I couldn't get out. I'd have to wear it for the rest of my life. <laughs> this is the strangest, coolest skirt I've ever seen, but okay, all right. There we go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're wearing a three-horsepower romper. It's great. <laughs> I would love to. So that, I think, to my knowledge, is the only photo I've ever seen of something that looks like a seatbelt. I would just love to see, you know, if anybody's got, uh, you know, well, it'll be eight millimeter film with that sort of thing of it back in the day. You know, what are you actually secured to? Well, you just see it's got like a carbine or a, a clip at the end of it. And there may be a bit two of them, but like, what is that? What is that clipping to? I, I, you know, I, I think it, it was there sort of to appease people that, that it was reliably safe. Also, what is that woman wearing on her head? Where she's getting it? Half of it, uh, the, the part it, of it that's facing us Disneyland. says land. land so, yeah. you know, she bought it. She <laughs> it, it looks like, like it looks like a half circle piece of paper that she folded put a string through two sides and is using it as a baseball cap. Was, was this an actual souvenir from Disneyland? I have never seen it, but on the other hand, you know, the Van Eaton auction is coming up and I'm sure someone's about to pay $150 for that. <laughs> exactly. All right. All right. Last question. Joe wrote in uh, with something about Universal and Marvel. His question was this. What's the status with Universal and Marvel's East Coast theme park rights? Will they ever give them up? Because Hollywood Studios is just waiting for a Marvel land. You could convert Tower of Terror into Guardians, like in California. You could make Rock and Roller Coaster into Avengers Assemble, like in Paris. Then you'd have all that wasted space in Animation Courtyard and the show building with the Lightning McQueen show, now available to expand, and Hollywood Studios is back in the game. 
And so, you know, I was like, basically told Joe, my, my initial response was going to be, don't hold your breath. But then I was like, you know how this time of the year you start to see articles on ESPN like, would Chicago trade the overall number one pick in April's NFL draft for three future number ones, four number twos, a helicopter ride on Marine Force One, and two packs of Marlboro Reds? Like, like is that is that feasible, right? <laughs> Can you tell I woke up extra early today and drank a bunch of coffee? <laughs> Which I don't oh, normally there do. Yeah. There right. we go. Okay. So this note made me wonder, and I want our listeners to weigh in on this. Just pretend for a minute you work for Disney and you are willing to trade something. Could be a movie franchise, could be TV, could be something else, whatever. What would you trade Universal Orlando in exchange for the East Coast rights to the Marvel franchise? I'm just going to throw out one quick story here, and this dates back almost 10 years ago now when Disney put out... Oz the Great and Powerful. And the initial plan for that was a franchise. In fact, I, I will flat out tell you I, that there was serious, serious talk about bringing Oz into the parks on the heels of the success of that. But supposedly, uh, when this project was initially uh, in development at Disney, it, it, in fact, it had the code name Brick, as in Yellow Brick Road. They used a back channel to reach out to the folks at, you know, NBC Universal and said, look, we're about to do this. And we know that you guys are planning to make a Wicked movie. In fact, you know, let's be honest, Len, the, you know, we, we saw the trailer for the, the first half of the Wicked movie at the Super Bowl this past year. And second half will debut next holiday season. But the notion was like, we will abandon this Oz project, which we view as a franchise, if you folks agree to sunset your Marvel uh, rights. And and the thing is, what's fascinating about it, that NBC Universal is they looked at the script, they looked at the, you know, and, and it's just like, nope, <laughs> you know, we're happy. You know, you, go ahead, make your Oz movie. You know, we'll still make our Wicked movie at some point when the, the Broadway show isn't continually selling out. But it's like, you know, thank you for reaching out. But that's the interesting thing. Disney's already tried this. And it's not to say at some point in the future, there isn't going to be something they can lay on the table that Universal wants. I mean, mind you, we've seen the inversion of this, you know, Disney offering NBC Universal Al Michaels for the yeah, for rights Oswald to the Oswald. There <laughs> which, we go. Which was straight up a fair trade. Like, I, I see was, the value on both sides of that. Okay, so at some point in the future, in this ever-changing media sphere that we live in, there will be something that Comcast really, really, really wants from Disney. And, and Disney will play the Marvel card, but until such a time, given the money they make off of people who go just go to islands to go to to experience you know whether it's the whole coaster or for that matter the amazing adventures of spider-man in the scoop vehicle um you know that that's still you know driving people to visit that park so they're not going to give that up anytime soon if i'm universal the first thing i point out is that the marvel franchise has made something like 30 billion dollars worldwide what what property do you have disney that's worth $30 billion in box office right now that you're willing to trade. And that's a remarkably small number of things, Jim. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know that Disney wants to give up any of those. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the story of what happened when Walt decided that Tomorrowland should be a part of Disneyland's opening day lineup. We'll be right back. 
Okay, so it's March. You made it through this winter. So you're going somewhere, right? Whether it's just a weekend getaway or a week-long excursion, you're going to need a bag that's, well, functional, something that can hold all the stuff. Plus, it would be nice if this bag looked good. Better still, if it got better looking with each trip and acquired some character. Well, if that's the sort of luggage you've been looking for, then you really need the Checkout Base, the line of luggage that actress and model Shay Mitchell designed. Because these things are handsome. More to the point, these bags make traveling a breeze because they can carry a ton of stuff. Normally, when I travel for work, I have to bring my computer bag plus a separate suitcase for clothes. But now that I've got my weekender bag from base, I can put everything I need for a work trip in a single carry-on and still have room for the souvenirs that I need to schlep home. The base line of luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and given that these bags have received over 30,000 five-star reviews, I'm not the only one singing bases' praises. So if you'd like to have the sort of bag that makes it easy to stay organized while you're on a trip, that helps you get through security quickly at the airport, right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com backslash Disney Dish. Go to basetravel.com backslash Disney Dish for 15% off your first purchase. Again, that's B-E-I-S travel.com backslash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Do you ever walk into a room and then say to yourself, now what did I come in here to do? That's okay. We all get distracted every now and then, and all it costs us is a teeny slice of time. Unless, of course, we're talking about a subscription you forgot about. Now that, my friends, that can actually get genuinely costly. Did you know that nearly 75% of people have subscriptions that they've forgotten about? Uh, a streaming service that they signed up for that they no longer use or a fitness app that they neglected to cancel after that 30-day free trial, and all of those forgotten monthly fees that they can really start to add up over time. This is why I am so glad I make use of Rocket Money. Rocket Money is that personal finance app that helps you find and then cancel unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, it can even help you lower your bills so that you can then grow your savings. And what Nancy especially loves about Rocket Money is it also helps us keep track of all of the reoccurring bills we have on a monthly basis. It even gives us a heads up prior to payment going out so that we can then make sure we have sufficient funds in the right account to move money over from savings to checking. You know the drill. We, too, are among the over 5 million users that Rocket Money has. And those folks, well, they've saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions. That's a savings of over $740 a year just for making use of this app's many features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. That's rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. One more time, for those of you who are mad just because we're still a few weeks out from the start of March Madness, rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. And we're back. All right, Jim, we left off last week and Walt, where Walt had said, like in early 1955, that Disneyland Park had to open with some sort of Tomorrowland, which was not previously 
part of the plan. So gnashing of teeth, rending of garments, but then everyone had to get back to work and actually make it happen, right? Well, no, that's it exactly. And and and, and remember, just to back up a little further, you know, July of 54, that's when actual site prep begins in Anaheim. We're pulling the, you know, ripping out, you know, uh, orange trees, we're, we're chopping down walnut groves, we're putting in, you know, uh, water pipes for plumbing and, and just beginning foundation work. But, but, Six weeks in, uh, September of that same year, C.V. Wood, the very first president and general manager of Disneyland, breaks the bad news to Walt. And it's like site prep at Disneyland is proving to be far more expensive than had previously been projected. So the, the overall cost of the project has now risen from $5 million to $10 million. To this day, we don't really know what Disneyland actually costs to build phase one. I, you know, in fact, you know, there, there's, there's a number that Disney will admit to, 17 million, but I've also been told that there was a roll top desk that was discovered at the, to the, the tail end of the first summer at Disneyland where somebody opened it up and all of these bills that had not been paid came spilling out. And it was just like, we'll deal with that later. Don't worry about it. We're going to burn this roll top desk. We're going to take the ashes and encase. <laughs> them in concrete we're going to surround it in lead radioactive lead and then we're going to dump it somewhere off in the in the the pacific trench (laughs) no one will ever know all sound fiscal policy land and that was the accountants talking (laughs) you you don't want to hear the crazy stuff that the other people came up with (laughs) okay so anyway back to september 54 cv has to go to walton like look if we're looking to limit our financial exposure here, some creative compromises have to be made. And it's like, and look, the easiest thing to put off, postpone, is Tomorrowland. I mean, you know, think about it. Main Street USA and Frontierland are much further along in development, but that's because if you look at that Mickey Mouse Park that Walt was going to build in the, the late 40s, early 1950s, across Riverside Drive, across from uh, Disney Studios and Burbank, that was largely only going to be Main Street and Frontierland. Fantasyland, on the other hand, proving to be a lot more problematic. You know, if you look at the early, early stuff for this part of Disneyland, there were a a number of water-based rides like the Monstro Shoot the Shoots and the Donald Duck Bump Boats. And not to forget that also during this early phase of of the project, Alice in Wonderland is supposed to be a walkthrough and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride is supposed to be the world's first indoor roller coaster. So just wrestling front you know, fantasy land down to a size that the company can, can actually build. Also finding the technology that, that to do some of these rides. Well, that's the company's top priority is, is, uh, you know, the summer of 54, such a slide in the fall of the same year. And, and by the way, Len, the, the term that the Imagineers use today for, for a moment like this is a reduction in scope. So anyways, Tomorrowland with its moving sidewalk and its inverted monorail, I would hang down from a track rather than riding on the top of a track with the alloy model. At this point, it's a bridge too far. There's too much stuff to figure out, too much stuff to design. So Walt agrees to CV's proposal and putting off Tomorrowland till summer of 56. The other thing is, is we haven't yet hit the space race, right? We're still in Davy Crockett. Oh, I love that you 
bring this up. Frontierland is important, right? Well, no, 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 no. I mean, you bring up a valid point. You know, we are on the cusp of the space race. And the weird part is the Disneyland TV show factors into this. But speaking of which, the Disneyland TV show debuts on ABC October 27th to 54. This is three months after Ground is Broken up in Anaheim on Disneyland to theme park. And the debut episode, brand new series, is called The Disneyland Stories. And over the course of, of this episode, Walt then walks folks through his his you know, soon-to-open family fun park. And the title sequence of the show, every week, mind you, features Tomorrowland, the promise of things yet to come. And C.V. Wood is like, he's like downing Pepto-Bismol every time the show comes on, right? You're not wrong, you know, because again, you know, in fact, there's a three and a half minute long segment in this Disneyland story show, which talks about Tomorrowland. And in fact, Glenn, it actually starts off with a piece of concept art that shows that inverted monorail <laughs> traveling through the side of the park. You know, and, and at no time, at no time during the show does Walt listen. Oh, by the way, this is going to open in, in the summer of 56. I hope that won't disappoint anybody. Wow, when, I'm gonna. I was gonna Google when the Federal Trade Commission was in, was uh, was started, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. It's not like okay. you're selling stock so, here. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, but what's interesting is again that three and a half minute long segment in the show that that touches on Tomorrowland. It's largely Ward Kimball talking about the Man in Space episode of this TV show. Now, okay, now here's the interesting thing, Len. This is an episode that debuts late in the first. Like, season of this anthology show. How late of the 22 episodes of the Disneyland TV show that were produced for the first season of this weekly series, which again, aired on ABC, Man in Space was the 20th, all right? It actually premiered March 9th, 1955, some 69 years ago this week. It is fascinating and, and, and incredibly well done. And, and by the way, Dr. Venerfoot Brown actually con uh, consulted on this thing. But by the way, it is the only episode of the entire first season of the Disneyland show that is released under the Tomorrowland banner. So even on the TV side of things, Walt's a little unsure about what he should do with uh, futuristic things for his family fun park. And um, by the way, just want to shut down uh, a, a rumor. Uh, for years now, it's been suggested that it was the hubbub surrounding uh, the initial airing of, of the Man in Space episode on ABC. Uh, but by the way, the very morning after this thing aired on ABC, Pentagon dials up Disney Studios and says, hey, can we have a copy of that show? And Disney puts it on a plane, and it's in Washington the very next day. The print and is still wet <laughs> at this point. Okay, right. It's then shown to then-President Dwight D. Eisenhower at the White House, uh, and then they run it over to the Pentagon where they have multiple screenings. And here's the thing, Len, I, you were mentioning about the space program. Just three months later, July 29th, 1955, the United States announces its plans to build and then launch the world's first artificial satellite. And uh, what's interesting is if you contact the Dwight D. Eisenhower Library, Museum, and Boyhood Home in Abilene, Kansas, they have Ike's presidential papers there. And it's very clear going over his schedule of March 9th, 1955. More to the point, you know, the, the references there to the, all right, they had this screening at the Pentagon and they had this screening at the Pentagon. This TV show literally did kickstart the U.S. US space program. 
But here's the thing. All right. The myth that's been out there for nearly 70 years, it was all the excitement that this man in space episode caused in Washington that then forced Walt's hand, that, that made him to decide to change, you know, Disneyland Tomorrowland from an opening in summer of 56 thing to an opening with the rest of Disneyland in July of 55 thing. And it's a fun story, but the, the dates don't line up. I mean, Walt decided to uh, get the construction of, of Tomorrowland need to go uh, get f- go forward in Jan- January, in fact, January 15th, 15, 1955. And by the way, it was Dave Smith, uh, the company's very first archivist who corroborated the state. He, he found it in Walt's personal papers. And again, that Man in Space episode uh, wouldn't air on ABC till March 9th of the same year. So there's eight and a half weeks between that. But again, just to be clear here, Work on the Tomorrowland side of Disneyland was largely on hold from the middle of September 54 through January 15th, 55. So now on Walt's whim, that side of the park has to be ready for the public in some form in just six months and a day. Now, here's the thing. C.V. Wood, when he hears his note, is furious because he is still struggling to fill all of the storefronts in Frontierland and Main Street, USA, which, by the way, is how we wound up with, with things like the Hollywood Maxwell a lingerie store that had the, the Wizard of Bras show. And now he's got to do it for tomorrow, yeah, Tomorrowland. Okay. Ah, well, not only that, he's got to find major corporations who are willing to fund important scientific displays that can be viewed from, you know, Tomorrowland's much hyped moving sidewalk. And oh, by the <laughs> it way, just gets better. Uh, uh, it just gets better. Well, they- well, yeah, this is the thing. By the way, that, that moving sidewalk, which again, was in the pers- Disneyland prospectus as early as 1953, given the far shorter construction time, this once 300-foot-long walkway, which was supposed to take you from the hub all the way back to where the Rocket to the Moon and the Autopia were located, now that gets down, cut, cut down to a 100-foot-long moving walkway, which would have taken you from the hub to the entrance, and, and then, it, you know, it totally gets cut. And now it's it's the court of flags, and, well, it's either the clock of the world, the Barland world clock, the world clock. This thing had a lot of names, but basically you can go, well, what time is it in Taiwan? <laughs> oh, there. Okay, cool. I'm so glad I came down to Anaheim. I can't imagine what a 300-foot-long moving sidewalk would look like. I mean, the biggest... Moving sidewalk I've ever seen is on the strip in Vegas, but that couldn't be more than a hundred feet. Well, that was the thing you you were supposed to have the the Jetsons experience. You're supposed to look to one side and it's like, oh, there's the electronic plane, and oh, there's a diving bell, and oh, you know. Uh, oh, by the way, here's the real irony: uh, this Rush version of Tomorrowland needs a designer. And in the same window of time, one of Hollywood's most influential science fiction films, Forbidden Planet, is in pre-production over at MGM in Culver City. In fact, Cedric Gibbons and Arthur Lernigan uh, designed this film, which Gene Roddenberry eventually sees and, to be polite here, lifts a number of Forbidden is inspired key by. concepts. <laughs> there we go, for Star Trek. It's not, it's not plagiarism, it's inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. Walt knows about Forbidden Planet, because he's actually already agreed to loan out Josh Meter, who is one of uh, Disney's real wizards when it comes to visual effects. He's going to loan him to MGM, and Josh is then going to animate the, the It Monster 
from Forbidden Planet, I, which, by the way, is is still to this day considered a tour de force for effects animation. Oh, 100%. The, uh, the, uh, the robot itself uh, inspired uh, the robot in Lost Robbie. in Space. I mean, just, yeah. There we go. I love, I, I love me some Robbie the robot. Okay, but anyway. Um, now, here's the thing. Forbidden Planet doesn't begin filming till April 18th, 1955. Production ends late May of that same year. Finished film wouldn't be out in theaters till March of the following year. So Walt could have, as he was horse trading with MGM for Josh Meter's services to, to animate the Ed Monster for, for Forbidden Planet, could have suggested, you know, hey, could I borrow Cedric Gibbons and Arthur Larnigan, you know, to help with the design of Disneyland Tomorrowland. But, but Walt didn't do that. He trusted C.V. Wood's instincts instead. And since Disneyland Tomorrowland is not a, a rush job, I, I'm more to the point because Disney is Disney is building down in Anaheim is supposed to be a family fun park with the emphasis on family. Um, C.V. reaches out to Republic Pictures, a studio that, that primarily makes B-movies and largely Westerns, and then asks if he could borrow Gabriel Skog Nam Milo, who had previously art-directed Tobor the Great for R Republic Pictures. By the way, Len, Tobor is robot spelled backwards. That's true. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm looking up the, um, the movie posters for Forbidden Planet and Tobar the Great. Oh. And the thing they have in common is giant robots holding buxom women. Like that was a that was a style motif <laughs> back in the fifties, wasn't it? <laughs> You know, you, you're making a decision outside of the building. Oh. I, I, I'm saying, Jim, I've been in technology all of my life and have yet to see any sort of technology carrying women that look like this anywhere in any of the buildings I've ever worked. So I feel I, I feel like the, uh, the 1950s lied to me. All right. Anyway, Tobar the Great is a family-friendly sci-fi film where first a little boy builds a robot, which is clearly a guy in a tinfoil suit, and then the same robot rescues the same little boy from Russian agents because... Well, uh, let me remind you, it's the 1950s, you know, and America's right in the middle of the Red Scare, which, by the way, is not helped in October of 57 when the Soviet Union actually beats the U.S. to the punch and launches Sputnik 1, the world's first artificial satellite. Well, I mean, at that point, you, you had to have had a, t a Tomorrowland, so luckily he did. There we go. Okay, so CV hires Gabe because Wood thinks that Skaganama Milo can deliver a family-friendly take on the future, one that could then comfor comfortably sit alongside fantasy. Disneyland, Frontierland, Main Street, USA. And Gabe, understanding that this project has a tight schedule and an even tighter budget, delivers swoopy, futuristic-looking things like Disneyland Space Bar, which has the... Uh, a California googie design. Um, on the other hand, CV doesn't have a year and a half to woo big co corporations to come be part of Disneyland's futuristic showcase, uh, which, by the way, was originally pitched as a permanent wor World's Fair. Where have I heard that before, Len? <laughs> um, so uh, he now has six months uh, and will take anybody who says yes. All right, so let, let's walk down the north side of the street. We got Circa Ramo, which is sponsored by American Motors. We got The World Beneath Us. Richfield Oil. <laughs> this is what I, I, I love. Okay. The Dutch boy color clock. Because again, you don't want to take the, the world clock's word for it. All right, Len? You know, yeah, it, let I me mean, go if it's to the color clock. Dutch boy, then you know the time is correct. Well, more to the point, actually, this is the thing that kind of threw me. I did not know this. Dutch boy was a subsidiary of the National Lead Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> Lead, it so, makes so many consumer products better. 
<laughs> it's so go. good. We and put it in your gas. <laughs> there we go. And, and you're paid. Oh, get her toes. Like, oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, going down the south side of the street now, we have the Chematron, which is co- sponsored by Monsanto. We have Kaiser Aluminum's Telescope. This, by the way, this 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 predates, you know, uh, Kaiser the Aluminum Pig. Uh, we have the Dairy Bar, uh, which is sponsored by the American Dairy Association. And then Crane's Bathroom of the Future. I will not tolerate any uh, negativity towards Crane's Bathroom of the Future on this show, Jim. So just... I withdraw my outrage. <laughs> okay. Right. okay. So Kaiser Aluminum Telescope I get, Chemitron I get, Monsanto. The Dairy Bar is kind of an interesting choice for Tomorrowland, but you know what? You... Uh, you're under deadline. You make some. You make some compromises. No, and in fact, speaking of creative compromises, they are ten days out from opening. They have an open storefront. They make a decision at that point. This is where a walkthrough exhibit of props from Twenty Thousand Leagues is going to go. Yeah, and now remind you, this Disney film had only been released to theaters in uh, December of 1954, so it's just months. And so they throw it in there and let. What I love about this is, you know, they it's like, how does this fit? Why is this going in there? Says, don't worry about it. It's only going in here. For six months, all right? Well, you know, CV's going to go out and find a big company to come in here, and we'll just take this stuff out. Don't worry about it. 11 years later. later. I knew it. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. It was the, the, the very first temporary attraction of Disney, Disney that would not die. Oh, All right. God, that's beautiful. By the way, if you want to learn more about this topic, there is a wonderful book from Robert Newman. Uh, it was published by McFarland Press back in November of 2022. It is called From Hollywood to Disneyland, Walt Disney's Dream Park and the Influence of American Movies. And, uh, you know, I, I pulled a few stories from that today, but... Well worth the read, but at the same time, it's just sort of like, you know, and, and the irony is to this day, the Imagineers, when they go to Disneyland and try to shoehorn something new into Tomorrowland, they are still dealing with all of these buildings that were slapped together, you know, quickly uh, because it's like, I changed my mind. We need to open this by July. I think I've, I've, uh, I've we've told the story before on the show where... Um I was at Pixar and they had uh, Tony Baxter movie night. And the idea is that Tony Baxter went to the Walt Disney archives, found all of this canister film footage that was not labeled and had it converted to DVD. And uh, so uh, during the, the movie night, he, uh, he would throw one of the DVDs on and had, you know, random footage, some of it like 30 seconds long, some of it a few minutes, but you would, um, you would have to figure out what's on the DVD, and then he would label it. And one of the DVDs was Disneyland Tomorrowland a week before opening. And to your point about the uh, the Dutch Boy Color Clock being sponsored by the National Ed Corporation, the opening scene from this footage was uh, a man with no shirt on, just pants, no safety equipment whatsoever, no no safety glasses, no hat, smoking a cigarette. And spray painting um, mica, the the element, in, in a clear finish on the walls of Tomorrowland to make it sparkle. And there were no there were no sidewalks installed at this point. And this is like a week out, and there's still dirt. And <laughs> Tony Tony introduces this clip by saying, "Do you see everything in this scene? All of it causes cancer, <laughs> like in California. Like California <laughs> thinks everything in this scene causes cancer. Like you're probably not uh. he- less healthy just watching what's going on here." Yeah, amazing stuff. 
companion story for this, and this is directly from Ken Anderson, who I interviewed. Ken, it was all hands in deck in the last 48 hours prior to the, again, live broadcast on ABC. So it was like, everybody get in a car, drive down to Anaheim, you know, you're going to help get this thing open. And Ken's job... You know, he found himself out back behind the building that they were going to load the 20K walkthrough in. And his job was to paint the squid with black light paint because they were going to, it was going to be in the very center of the building. Again, they were going to dangle wires from above so the tentacles would move. And with the black light painting, it would look like the, the monster was underwater and the you know, tentacles were moving and that sort of thing. So this is his job. And he's like, you know, they literally just, they threw it on the back of a dump truck, drew, drove it up to Anaheim and just dumped it out. You know, and it's like, and, and this is the thing, the... Uh, in order for the squid to look like it was a squid, they had filled all of its tentacles with this substance called Kapok, um, which they had done for the first version of the squid fight scene, which was done, you know, filmed uh, on a calm sea at sunset. Kapok. That's K-A-P-O-C. And anyway... Uh, Walt decides after looking at the footage, wow, that squid looks fake. And so we're going to restage the scene with wind machines. It's going to be at night in the middle of a lightning storm. And K-Pok is this really absorbent material. (laughs) So it's now a full year after 20,000 Leagues. This scene in 20,000 Leagues has been shot. And poor Ken is outside behind the building painting these these arms full of rotting K-pop that stinks to high heaven. And it's like, what did I do to get this job? You know, how did I offend Walt? And, and he spent so much time working on this thing that he, he described it's the night before Disneyland opens and he's exhausted and he actually falls asleep in the arms of the squid. <laughs> And wakes the gentle, up. comforting arms of the squid. Am I the gentle, comforting arms of the squid. It wakes up the next morning, and it's like they lost their window to load the squid in. So oh. the, the squid wasn't ready for, you know, in fact, if anybody actually made it into the 20,000 leagues walkthrough of the, the day of the live broadcast, they would have walked around a giant chamber on the outside. Like, What's supposed to be in here? It's, well, it's it's outside behind the building filled with rotting K-Pok and a man who's asleep in its arms. And let's not talk about this. See, I would have gone with, no, no, no. You're supposed to be the squid, like Snow White. Like, no, no, no. Oh, in this experience, so, yeah. you are the protagonist. You know, high there concept. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> okay, you. Go attack the novel. Exactly. 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 <laughs> it's cheaper that way. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com slash jimhillmedia, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. Check it out at patreon.com slash jimhillmedia. On next week's show, looking ahead to the Magic Kingdom's Beyond Big Thunder project, Jim walks us through part of the last huge Magic Kingdom transformation project when Disney proposed Pixie Hollow for Fantasyland and we ended up with Storybook Circus. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplants.com. We're produced spectacularly by Eric Hersey, who'll be doing his best rendition of The Way I Loved You and Begin Again at the Toad Suck Mini Golf Taylor Swift Karaoke Contest this coming Saturday, March 9th at the Toad Suck Mini Golf on US 64 East in beautiful downtown Conway, Arkansas. Fun fact, I've been there. <laughs> While Eric's doing that, please go into iTunes and write our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. <laughs>